0: Money and oil and gas development go hand in hand. There's big money put into it. For example, $40 billion for an LNG plant, and there's big money to take out of it. But who's putting money in? Who's getting it out? And what is that money buying when it comes to making energy policy in Canada? These are a few of the questions we'll explore in this episode as we follow the money on Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. Hi, I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon, and you're listening to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. This podcast miniseries is produced by Sierra Club BC on Lekwungen Territory. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Sue. Uh, Caitlin, I'll confess, I sometimes get overwhelmed when I try to sort out the money and the players involved in Canada's... No energy portfolio, let's call it.
1: Mm -hmm. And there is there is certainly a lot of money involved, Um, and you know it's worth thinking about who is really profiting from the oil and gas industry. We don't hear so much about that. We know that taxpayer dollars are going into the industry to 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 prop it up, to support it, Um, but we don't hear a lot about how the industry is using those dollars really to maintain its economic advantages.
0: Yeah, and we don't hear a lot about this transition from fossil fuel dependence to clean energy. And you know, when you consider the longer term impacts of this transition on the oil and gas industry, that actually should be making headline news.
1: Yeah, it should, and we're going to talk about that. So in in our last episode, we spoke about the costs of transition to clean energy. Uh, and who should pay, as well as the costs of the, the cleanup as we deal with the extreme weather and so on. And we heard about how companies like Exxon knew 30 years ago that they were causing climate change, but they suppressed and denied the science. So in this episode, Sue, we want to follow the money, look at how the big oil industry is shaping our politics, our media, and even what we're talking about. For example, yeah, so there's a couple of bills that have been making their way through parliament and the senate this year. Uh, So the democratically elected House of Commons passed both of these bills. One was to uh, implement a ban on oil tankers on BC's North Coast, and the other is to improve Canada's environmental assessment process. So both of those were passed in the House of Commons. But since then, they've seen intense pushback and lobbying from the oil industry to the point that the unelected Senate managed to significantly water down both pieces of legislation. And
0: that's not the only decision out of Ottawa that we're concerned about, is it?
1: No, we also recently have seen the federal government approving the Trans Mountain Pipeline and Tankers Project that would bring tar sands bitumen to the coast of BC, shipping 400 tankers a year. The oil lobby has been pushing for Canada to be expanding fossil fuel production at the time when we're in a climate emergency. And really, how does it happen that the day after the federal government declares a climate emergency, they approve a pipeline that's going to be making things worse for our communities?
0: Well, I turn to Bill Carroll for some answers to those questions. Now, Bill is a sociology professor at the University of Victoria. But more pertinently, he is the co-director of the Corporate Mapping Project. And that looks at the ways in which oil and gas corporations influence policy and public discourse. Now, Caitlin, we're doing things a little bit differently this week, because Bill's expertise is so wide-ranging when it comes to the role of money in Canada's energy development, I sat down for an extended interview with him. And we settled in his backyard with the birds chirping in the trees. Then we started talking about Canada's perception of itself as a resource economy. I'd like to start today, actually not talking about numbers, but about identity. I'm going to play a clip from Laurie Ackerman. She's the mayor of Fort St. John, and she was speaking at a pro-pipeline rally in Calgary. So we are Canadians, and I believe in my little Canadian heart that we have the ability to change the conversation and take the reins of our future and help our colleagues understand that resource communities are foundational to this nation. So, Bill. Is she right? Is resource extraction foundational to Canadians? You know, what's our sense of ourselves when it comes to the economy?
2: Well, certainly the land base of Canada is resource rich. There's no denying that. And um, in the development of Canada as a country, um, you know, investors have taken advantage of that land base, often typically with the assistance of colonizing processes in terms of making the land available to them. So there's some truth in it, but I think over time, certainly resources claim a smaller proportion of the workforce, relatively small proportion of the Canadian workforce is involved in direct resource extraction now. Uh, I think it accounts for about 5% of GDP, but less than 2% of the actual labor force. And the difference there has to do with um, the fact that the industry is very capital intensive. So it actually generates relatively few jobs per dollar of of investment. It's not a marginal industry, obviously, but it's often blown out of proportion, I think, in terms of the public consciousness and certainly in terms of the corporate spin that's uh, put on all of this. But there definitely is money to be
0: made in oil and gas. And so who are some of the players who are making the money in oil and gas?
2: Well, we found uh, in the corporate mapping project that the industry is dominated by five large producing corporations and two large pipeline corporations. So we're talking about Uh, In terms of the pipelines, um, Enbridge and TransCanada, of course, the Canadian government now owns the um, uh, former Kinder Morgan, uh, the Trans -Trans Mountain uh, pipeline. What proportion of those companies are
0: foreign-owned and what proportion of the money if you like, stays in Canada. I know that's a simplistic way of putting it.
2: Mm-hmm. It's um, it, Traditionally, uh, the sector uh, has been very largely uh, foreign-owned. That's been shifting over time, partly because some of the big transnationals uh, based elsewhere have been pulling out of the tar sands. So there's relatively little um, foreign-owned capital left in the tar sands. Imperial oil is still a major player, uh, for sure. Although these some of these... these... These corporations uh, that are Canadian-based are also transnational, so they might be moving their capital around on a global basis. There is money being made. It seems like a very profitable sector. How
0: much of that is due to government assistance?
2: Yes. Uh, well, the government assistance uh, is an increasingly important factor. And um, there's reason to suspect that, you know, a lot of these companies would really not be profitable without the full spectrum of government assistance that's provided to them. And by that I mean more than just the tax breaks and uh, the very low royalty rates, which are two really important sources of um, profit, really. But also, in a sense, uh, the government not really really uh, engaging in the kind of regulatory practices that are needed uh, in order to um, prevent potentially disastrous uh, consequences down the road. I'm thinking of all the orphaned wells, for example, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, which um, have not been properly uh, remediated. And so there, you know, many people would say that they are sort of ticking time bombs. Uh, But if you think about it, it's a major source of profit that these companies have been able to externalize their costs. They haven't been um, actually um, um, paying for the full cost of the extraction. So it's not really clear, particularly with declining oil prices and uh, the the rather murky future, especially for bitumen, that uh, a lot of these companies would be profitable at all with out the massive assistance that the government is providing in this way.
0: And this assistance is generally referred to as subsidies to the industry. And and I've heard the figure of $3 billion a year in subsidies.
2: Is that about right? I don't know the exact figure. It's actually very hard to calculate. For example, the orphaned wells issue, you could come up with a much bigger number than that, actually. uh, But that's not considered technically a subsidy. It's it's doubtful, I think, that, that this industry would be continuing to grow, if there were not these kinds of state uh, measures that really make the whole game profitable.
0: And by comparison, what kind of
2: government assistance like that is available for
0: the renewables industry?
2: Well, um, the federal government and also uh, the uh, Alberta government, at least under Rachel Notley, were. Moving toward assistance uh, and providing assistance to um, the development of renewables industry, but it's not really comparable, I would say, in terms of the amount of um, assistance provided. Uh, you know, the oil and gas industry in Canada has an enormous presence and enormous power politically that um, the renewable sector simply doesn't have at this point. So that's one of the differences. You know, basically a new industry like renewables um, could be growing very quickly, but doesn't really achieve the kinds of assistance that it would really need. And and the other question is, you know, how do we uh, develop this new sector? Like, is it simply going to be developed like like any old uh, business sector? Or are there possibilities for introducing some amount of social justice into the way that our future energy needs are satisfied? That's one of the things we've been learning. Is that through this
0: transition there may be opportunity to change the way we've always done things? So we've had, as you said, very few players owning a lot of the oil and gas resource in, in Canada and making money off of it. But renewables offers different opportunities in that sense, doesn't it?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the way that renewable energy, particularly uh, solar and wind, also geothermal, uh, it's it's much more localized in terms of its production. I mean, it doesn't require an enormous uh, infrastructure in terms of the grid. And it, it that opens the door to more local control. The local control can be citizen-based. It can be uh, municipal. It can be public ownership, cooperatives. Uh, there's all sorts of possibilities that I think are actually quite attractive when we compare it to the you know, highly concentrated power that large corporations have in our current energy framework.
0: You know, we discussed that in another episode of this podcast series on energy democracy. And it came up during that that it really needs government to believe in something like energy democracy to make it happen, because the players who have the money can control things, and right now that is the oil and gas people. So what would government need to do to actually see some change happen, real change happen in terms of energy ownership?
2: Well, you know, if we think back to the NDP government in British Columbia in the 1990s, which was somewhat more courageous than the current one, I would say. They developed a kind of a ministry of cooperatives and community development, and um, they were directly trying to help support and grow these kinds of initiatives under community control, social economy, publicly owned, various ownership frameworks, really. Uh, There's not like one way of doing this, but the point is that it is possible. It does require uh, some state assistance. And again, it's a, it's a matter of priorities. You know, if the priority is to simply go with business as usual and, and shore up the, uh, the oil and gas sector, then the money going to go in that direction and not in the direction of really what everybody can see is the future. So, maybe not investing $40 billion
0: in LNG and instead looking at even a different ownership structure. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, exactly. Ownership is very important. I know in Germany uh, there's been a lot of uh, local initiatives in German uh, municipalities to develop uh, systems uh, that are um, really inclined toward this energy democracy framework. And now uh, some of the big players in uh, German corporate capitalism are uh, trying. to take over some of that so that's that's always something to look out for as well you know it's important to think about how to make uh, alternative ownership models that are more community-based and democratic how to make them actually viable and um, even immune from these kinds of corporate um, takeovers
0: I've been speaking with Bill Carroll, co-director of the Corporate Mapping Project. You're listening to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. And Caitlin Vernon is with me now. Hi, Caitlin.
1: Hi, Sue. It's really great to take a minute for this perspective on the oil and gas industry. One of the key considerations for me here is uh, you and Bill were talking about subsidies to the oil and gas industry. And really what that looks like is the handouts of public funds to the tune of billions of dollars uh, in royalties and tax credits and so on. Um, and, And if we look at the decision to purchase the Trans Mountain Pipeline, no investor wanted it. The corporation Kinder Morgan wasn't able to sell it. And the federal government stepped in for what has been said was more than the value of the pipeline. So the government spent $4.5 billion to bail out Kinder Morgan and is likely going to spend at least $7 billion to build the pipeline. That's assuming it goes ahead.
0: And that really speaks to, again, Bill's point about, you know, if the oil and gas industry is so healthy, why does it need this kind of injection of of help?
1: Yeah, it raises a lot of questions. and, And it seems like without these handouts of public funds, without these subsidies, suddenly oil and gas would not, in fact, look so profitable. And, and just imagine if the renewable energy industry were given the billions of dollars in tax breaks and incentive programs and so on, what that could look like for our transition.
0: Well, and we're going to take a quick break now here on Mission Transition. And when we come back, more of my conversation with Bill Carroll. Hi, I'm Brian Pinch. I've been a member of Sierra Club BC for over 40 years. I'd like to invite you to our 50th anniversary gala on November 9th in Victoria. I'm so stoked about this event. What Sierra Club BC has accomplished over 50 years is nothing short of absolutely amazing, and the characters are incredible. Uh, Come for a night of stories, reminiscing, and celebration. For details or to purchase tickets, please check the Sierra Club BC website. Welcome back to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. This is a podcast miniseries produced by Sierra Club BC. I'm Susan Ellrington, along with Caitlin Vernon. And today we're talking about money and the role it plays in our perception of the oil and gas industry. I've been speaking with Bill Carroll of the Corporate Mapping Project. And in a moment, we'll continue our conversation by looking at lobbying, But first, Caitlin, we have a bit of a timing issue. My interview with Bill was conducted last week before we knew the fate of the two key pieces of legislation we referred to earlier.
1: Yeah, last week before breaking for the summer, the government passed Bill C-69, which improves environmental assessments across the country. And they passed Bill C-48, which imposes a ban on tanker traffic off of B.C.'s north coast.
0: And Caitlin, as you'll hear, I talked to Bill Carroll about that when our conversation in his garden with the chirping birds (laughs) resumed. But we started by talking about CAP. Now, that's the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers.
2: Well, CAP is a very big industry group, meaning that its membership is made up of the oil and gas uh, companies uh, um, based in Canada. It's extremely well-resourced. Uh, it, it has um, you know, a pretty big budget. It has um, tons of paid lobbyists. It does a lot of media campaigning. It's been fairly innovative in terms of the use of social media, developing this site called Canada's um, Energy Citizens, which is... Um, modeled after a similar site in the United States. So it's operating on a number of fronts. Certainly the basic lobbying activities that it does in Ottawa and also at the provincial level are massive and, and ongoing. You know, We've looked into that in terms of the extent of lobbying by CAP. It really is the voice of the sector. As of the time that we're doing this
0: interview, we have a very interesting case playing out in Ottawa right now. Two bills are making their way through Parliament. Bill C-69 covers environmental assessments, and uh, Bill C-48 would formalize a moratorium on oil tanker traffic off BC's north coast. Mm -hmm. And the Senate particularly has been a target of lobbying from both industry and environmentalists. So what does that lobbying look like?
2: Well, um, the industry lobbying uh, in this case has been very intensive and fairly effective, I would say, in terms of the number of amendments, at least, to Bill C-69 that were passed uh, by the Senate. If the federal government had accepted all those amendments, the bill would have been effectively gutted. It wasn't that strong a set of reforms in the first place, but it would have been completely changed and actually made even worse than what had been put into place um, under the Harper regime earlier so it's a good example I think of, of this kind of uh, full court press you know to use the basketball metaphor this, this kind of approach that a well-resourced group like cap can use compared to say the environmental movement uh, which has also uh, engaged in some lobbying but uh, you know it's there's an enormous difference in the, the quantity and uh, effectiveness of the lobbying. So at its most
0: basic level, when we're talking about lobbying, we're usually talking about taking meetings with politicians, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, can you give some sense of proportion as to what the industry, the oil and gas industry was able to do in terms of taking meetings versus
2: what environmentalists were able to do? It's a quantum difference. It's really a difference between hundreds and and dozens. We've actually, in the corporate mapping project, tracked this over a longer period of time. So not just looking at the recent uh, Bill uh, C-69, but the entire kind of gamut of lobbying around uh, fossil fuels uh, by the uh, oil and gas sector. In comparison with uh, environmental NGOs, this would be between 2011 and early 2018. And uh, the difference there was um, five to one in terms of the number of lobbying meetings, um, which means that the the oil and gas sector, including CAP as one of the major uh, organizations, of course, met with federal government officials something over 11,000 times in that period between 2011 and 2018, every week, uh, several times every week. But it does show you the extent to which the industry is organized to, um, uh, to promote their interests as basically the national interest. And this, this is the way it goes down, I think. And, and they, they're constantly grooming government officials to think that way.
0: And in the same time period, roughly, how many meetings might have been taken by environmentalists?
2: Well, it was something over a 1,000, uh, but I think less than 2,000, something on that order. Mm-hmm. So I mean, not an, not an insubstantial number. So overall, how
0: successful has this lobbying been for the oil and gas industry? When you look over the last few years, let's say that 2011 to 2018 period, how much do you think the industry benefited from all of that lobbying?
2: Well, tremendously. I mean, they already have in place um, the measures that favor them. So basically what they would like to maintain is business as usual. They, they don't really need to be pushing for change at this point. And they've been very effective, certainly under the Harper administration, incredibly effective. Let's move a little bit from government to
0: the public perceptions and public discourse and and I guess how that happens through the media. These days, that immediately raises the the specter of Alberta Premier Jason Kenney's war room. Maybe you could describe for our listeners what exactly the war room is.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's a it's a kind of project under construction at this point, so I'm not sure exactly what it will look like. They they have convened meetings uh, involving industry to uh, figure out what the war room will look like and how it will function. I think they have a $30 million budget, which is a lot of money, a lot more than uh, environmental groups have, that's for sure. And it's interesting because, uh, of course, the industry industry itself has enormous uh, budgets for getting its message out already. So the idea of providing another $30 million, this is in effect another kind of state subsidy.
0: I would imagine that having the government pick up your banner and run with it is also got almost a, a priceless sense to it.
2: Yeah, well, I I think the um, the Kenny government so far has been really pushing this idea that the oil industry is uh, is at the core of the interests of all Albertans. It's a persuasive discourse, particularly within Alberta.
0: And yet, as I've researched this podcast series on moving to clean energy, many initiatives, including retraining workers, including giving communities money to ensure equitable access to electricity and so on, are all happening in Alberta. So there's a public sense that it's all oil and gas, but people are also doing an awful
2: lot to welcome in a new clean economy. Mm Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. So you know, often what we see in the mediascape is not the same as the actual reality. But the mediascape is very powerful in shaping people's uh, perceptions. And this is where it comes in. I think that this kind of wedding Albertans to um, the oil and gas sector, it's something that people have been, you know, socialized really to to accept as simply part of their fate, when in fact, what's happening on the ground is rather different. I mean, one of the differences is that the Alberta uh, industry really is in crisis. And um, there's a lot of denial going on in terms of how deep that crisis is and whether a few little changes are going to make a difference or, you know, whether the industry really is uh, beginning to fall into a long-term decline that is completely uh, and doesn't really have to do with the the efforts of environmentalists. It has more to do with uh, a shift taking place at a global level. And so it
0: becomes more important to look at how that story that you just talked about is being covered by the media. And once again, we bring in oil and gas money and how that may be confusing the issue here. Because when we go back to Jason Kenney's war room, there's a relationship with Post Media, which owns major newspapers across Canada. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, well, there are definitely journalists very concerned about this uh, special relationship that seems to have developed between Post Media and uh, the Jason Kenney war room. You know, it's, it's highly questionable whether, you know, a journalistic organization like Post Media should be shilling for <laughs> a provincial government that's in the pocket of the oil industry. It, it l- looks rather odd. If we just hold to the basic standards of of journalism, there's something wrong with that picture, that's for sure. It's
0: interesting to me when we talk about the muddying of the relationship between the oil and gas industry and a major media outlet like Post Media, because one of the big stories when it comes to climate change in Canada, you would think these days, is the carbon tax. And yet I would bet that the average Canadian really doesn't understand the nuances and in the ins and outs and complexities of the carbon tax, or even to the extent how much it really affects their pocketbook. So
2: why is it hitting the headlines? It's partly... Um a problem of of the carbon tax as a kind of relatively superficial approach, I would say, that could work if it were set at a high enough level. But of course, partly with industry lobbying, that level is extremely low and not likely to really uh, influence uh, very many decisions by people. The carbon tax is not really an adequate approach to the kind of transition we need to be making. We need to be thinking more in terms of what's called supply side strategy, which means winding down the industry itself in a way that um, creates good green jobs so that we don't leave people behind. Um, I think it's possible, but it, it takes a lot, a lot of political leadership that we don't have at this point. That's also not a story that
0: oil and gas really wants to be telling at this point. So how do they benefit
2: from the focus being on the carbon tax? On the one hand, the oil and gas industry can complain about the carbon tax and say that it's uh, it's cutting into their profits. But it is strategically very, I think, helpful to the industry to have the carbon tax as the major kind of measure. It lets them off the hook in terms of any kind of real restrictions on what they're going to be investing in and how they're going to be making their money.
0: In these days of fake news and dog whistles, most people are having a really hard time figuring out how to assess the information that's out there. So what are some of the questions maybe that they can ask in order to try and figure out what's real and what's not? In this whole energy portfolio,
2: (laughs) yeah. Well, I think it's important to you know look at how the message is uh, supported, how it's actually funded. For example, a lot of what appears in the National Post, uh, as an example, well, you know, is is definitely inclined toward the oil industry, and I would say is is more in the category of propaganda than news. There are lots of online examples of this, like Rebel Media, is particularly obvious one. But various uh, initiatives like that. I mentioned Canada's Energy Citizens. That's uh, simply a a project of the um, Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. So one has to be very careful, I think, in looking at those kinds of sources. There is, on the other hand, a really important development of, if you like, an ecosystem of of alternative media. And these are very excellent sources of information, uh, award-winning publications like the National Observer Uh, the Tai, the Narwhal would be three important ones that that regularly cover these issues. And they cover them with very thorough investigative journalism. Uh, A lot of journalism nowadays is fairly superficial. Often it simply paraphrases uh, media releases from CAP or big companies or whatever or uh, governments. I think we're left uh, often uh, to look, for sources that are uh, somewhat off the beaten track, if you like, so less of a kind of mainstream media and more the responsible sources of information in some of these alternative uh, news sources that have been developing.
0: And that was Bill Carroll. He's the co-director of the Corporate Mapping Project, which tracks oil and gas ownership and the industry's influence on government policy. And Caitlin Vernon is back with me now. And Caitlin, there's so much to consider when it comes to this industry.
1: There is, Sue. You know, we think we live in a democracy, but when you dig into it like Bill has, the oil companies are shaping what our governments do and what our media covers
0: And the the impacts of this work that the oil and gas industry does are, are really kind of amazing, and they're so insidious. You know, Caitlin, I watched and read the coverage of the Trans Mountain Pipeline announcement in mainstream media pretty carefully. And the government is using the jobs argument again to try and sell the pipeline, and nobody seemed to be dissecting that whole Argument: The government's assertion that that there are tons of jobs to be made with the pipeline.
1: Right. Also, nobody's really talking about the fact that one oil spill on the coast could put at risk ninety thousand coast-dependent jobs. So why aren't we talking about that? And we don't we don't hear so much in the media about how clean energy, in fact, employs more people than the oil and gas industry. Just last month, Sue, uh, Clean Energy Canada released a study showing that nearly. 300,000 Canadians were directly employed in clean energy in 2017. And that's nearly 100,000 more than what Statistics Canada data said were working in mining, quarrying, and oil and gas extraction combined.
0: And after my conversation with Bill, you know, we clearly have to question the influence of the oil and gas lobby as a reason that we don't hear more about that. And You know, Caitlin, I was thinking for some personal perspective. You spend a lot of long, long days trying to counterbalance the influence of oil and gas, both with the government and at all levels and and in the public perception. What do you think when you listen to Bill talk about the massive resources that the industry has for its efforts?
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, it's pretty sobering to think about the disproportionate influence that the oil industry has and had has had really over decades and how we wouldn't be in such a crisis today if they hadn't been blocking climate action decades ago. We've talked about that in other episodes, how really the crunch of what we're facing is a lot more urgent and the transition needs to be a lot more rapid and therefore more difficult than it would have been if we'd started a long time ago and, and we didn't. Because these, because of the oil industry. Um, and I also, I think back to our last episode about who should pay for the burden of this transition. And clearly, there's this concept of polluter pay. And so, you know, it should be the polluters that pay. And all of this just makes me wonder... Uh, what what do we do? What so, do we do with so this what, information?
0: So what do we do with this information? I think that's the number one question on everybody's mind.
1: Yeah, and part of it, there's a few things. I mean, we can we can get our governments to stop giving handouts of public funds to to prop up the oil and gas companies. Removing these subsidies would make oil and gas initiatives uneconomic. Um, and we can we can question our media we can think critically about our media we can write letters to the editor we can we can dive into sort of the lines we're being fed and see what rings true
0: yeah and I would say here that remember media is a business and if you choose not to buy or consume media that is biased mm. so completely and clearly biased, to be honest in one one side or the other one perspective or another if you feel you're not getting more truthful information from it don't buy it
1: and i mean ultimately i think it's important to keep in mind that no one ever said that going up against big oil or stopping a pipeline was going to be easy and it, yet and yet we've done it
0: it is a bit david and goliath isn't it when you think about things like you know, Northern Gateway.
1: Yeah, so we stopped the Enbridge-Northern Gateway pipeline. We've stopped the Energy East pipeline. And despite Trans Mountain being approved once again, there's a good chance that Indigenous legal challenges will stop it in the courts. And in fact, we're going to be supporting them through our Pull Together campaign. And I'd like to invite all of our listeners to get involved. Our, our tagline is, who knew stopping a pipeline could be so fun? Uh, you can find out more at our website, pull-together.ca. Because really, this is none of this is easy. Um, th- we're up against big, powerful forces. But truly, I think what we've seen is that when people come together, a different future is possible.
0: And you can find out more about all of Sierra Club's campaigns at sierraclub.bc.ca. And that's it for this episode of Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. In our next episode, we'll be going back to the land. It can be argued that the history of Canada since colonization has been about exploiting the land for profit. It's clear that has to change. But how? And we'll look at current tensions over land use, including a cautionary tale about how not to use the land for renewable energy. And we'll turn to Indigenous law for guidance in changing our relationship to land in the future. You can download that episode next week and all our other episodes now at our website, sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast, or subscribe at your favorite podcast provider. And we really love to hear what you think of Mission Transition. Please post your thoughts on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and make sure to tag us at Sierra Club BC. I'd like to thank North Growth Foundation for making this podcast possible. And all of you who have donated to support more podcasts, you can make a donation at our website on our podcast page. And finally this week, I'd like to thank Caitlin Vernon. Thank Thank you, Caitlin. (laughs)
1: Thank you, Sue.
0: (laughs) And Kat Zimmer at Sierra Club BC for all her help in getting this podcast published. I'm Susan Elrington. Thank you for listening.